Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Lane. Welcome to More Than a Club podcast for episode two of season two. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with coach Marty Cuprian, and we are grateful to be with you again as we make our way through these unique times together. I think we have another interesting show for you, highlighted by our first Canadian. I have a soft spot for Canadian lacrosse. It's players, coaches, style play, and international teams. So I am eager to delve deeper into our new episode with our esteemed guest. How about you, Coach Coop? Thanks, Bill. I'm fired up to talk to Coach Ray as well. Um, in addition to his Canadian influence that we look forward to hearing more about, he's also our first guest that is a Division I head coach currently. So we're looking forward to talking with him. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, you guys. It's great to be here. Um, excited and feel very privileged that you asked me to do this and excited that I have my two boys part of the next family. So looking forward to it. Yeah, great. And thanks for sharing them with us. They're fine young men and hope they're having a good experience so far. So far, so good. All right, Coach Coop, you want to move us into our first segment? Yeah, definitely. We always like to start the show with a youth sports hot topic. Obviously, right now it is COVID, uh, and we wanted to know what does your return to play look like at St. Joseph's? You know, what are you doing with your team? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How's it different? Yeah, well, it's been very different. Um, you know, it started out with uh, you know the school tested everyone uh, the first week of classes, so there was universal testing. All athletic department employees, all staff members, and students were tested. Um, once you got your test back from that, you could move, um, you know, if everyone had a negative test, you could move into your sort of acclimation period recommended by the NCAA. So we have our team split up into, uh, into six separate pods. Pods need to be 10 or less. Um, there can be no intermingling between the pods. The pods are set up based on, uh, your living arrangements. So, you know, we have six freshmen in one pod mixed with a uh, a group of four seniors that live together. And um, the challenge has been, you know, for the first couple of weeks, it was just strength and conditioning. You know, they had a, you know, sort of a get your body ready to get back into into sport uh, play. And, you know, uh, it was very, very light and progressed a little bit slowly. And then we got into sports specific training. So that's what we've been doing for the last, I guess, five weeks. Um, there have certainly been some challenges in, the in, in figuring out the best way to train each of the, the pods because they're not arranged by position they're arranged by who you live with so you might have three midfielders a goalie a face-off guy two defensemen and you know uh you know one attackman in a group so instruction has been very holistic you know for the first two weeks everybody did everything that the pod did with the exception of the specialists they got kind of pulled out and did their own thing um you know, in terms of how we're returning to play, you know, we can have only 10 guys in the locker room at once. So it takes a while to get everybody through through changing. Uh, they have to check in every single day before they enter the athletic center. They get uh, a symptom checklist, their temperature taken, and they get a sticker uh, that allows them to enter the building. Um, same thing when you're when you're coming back in to change. You don't have to go through the, the, the testing again, but only 10 people allowed in the locker room. Masks are worn for everything, you okay. know, weight room, under your helmets, um, uh, strength and conditioning. So, you know, the guys obviously uh, aren't too pleased about that. Uh, but, you know, as you, as you, as you go through it, you, you get pretty comfortable with it. So they're used to it now. It seems less burdensome, and we've, we've just been happy to be able to get some work done. 
Yeah, fascinating. How about for our high school parents and our high school players who are listening, how has recruiting changed in the age of COVID? Um, well, just like everything else, it's all virtual. So you spend a lot of time watching the tournament games on the on the computer, you know, uh, between the, the three uh, coaches that we have, full-time coaches on staff. We watched a lot of games, talked to a lot of coaches, started to build our list over the summer. And then September 1st, you start to start to call the kids and you know collect transcripts and any updated film and again have those conversations with the the coaches and the club coaches um the 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 next step after initial contact has been zoom zoom meetings so we've done a lot of zoom meetings where you're talking about you know the academics the athletic piece sort of the the social and intangibles about the school, the size, the makeup, the distance from their home and proximity to the city and some of the things that we think are special about St. Joe's there. And, um, you know, then we do a, a virtual tour where we'll walk them through campus and show them some, uh, some video of different areas of campus. But the thing that has been most surprising to me is once you, once you do the Zoom, there's really nothing else you can do. You know, you can continue <laughs> yeah. to have conversations with them, but there's nothing else that we can really do from our end. And that's why I think you've seen so many decisions being made so quickly is with the dead period being extended through January, um, nothing's going to change between now and then. So if you've done that with the five schools that you were most interested in and, you know, then, then people are making decisions. So uh, it's actually gone faster for us this year than it has in any other, uh, well, not any other year before the rule change, but in the last two, three years, this is probably the fastest that it's been going. Mm. Well, without the high school season, the club was able to play, so you could watch their tournament games. Mm -hmm. So where's the role of a high school coach at this point? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think the high school coach is the best reference in terms of the, the character and some of the uh, – um, you know, some of those elements, you know, what's he like as a student? What's he like socially? What's he like uh, in terms of his work ethic? And, uh, you know, the club coaches see that, but they see it. You know, every, cl every club is different, but they see it in glimpses. They might know the kid from the time they spent with him on the field, but the high school coach tends to know them maybe a little bit better in terms of their social circles and, you know, the type of people they're hanging out with and the way they behave outside of the, the lacrosse scene. So... I think they still have a, a very important role, and hopefully they'll get to play the, the high school season this year. Yeah, here's to hoping. As a high school coach, dear to my heart, so mm -hmm. knowing that my buddies lost their season, that's, that's tough and players. So how about how has recruiting changed in terms of when you get back to the back on campus? Roster size, locker room size. I mean, you talked about 10 people being in the locker room, but what about when all this returns to normal? You're going to have a, a pipeline, right, a backup. Yeah, we do, and I think any coach that doesn't – admit to that is sort of you know skating around the the topic you know rosters are are bigger now you know and you're going to see that for each of the next you know 21 but also the next three years because you have you know three more classes that have the opportunity to come back for that fifth year um you know when we look at it and just to be to be blunt most coaches would tell you that their top returning senior, uh, who's 20, 21 years old, the ability for the top three to five guys in that senior class coming back to make an impact over the freshmen who come in, uh, they're probably going to want those guys to come back. So you're going to see the roster sizes 
be bigger, you know, 55 to 65 people will be the norm, I think, at the Division wow. One level. And, uh, you know, you're, you just gotta, just gotta deal with it, manage it. More than anything, you know, if you're, if you're a competitor and you're a player, you know, you don't think about that. All you think about is what, what am I doing today to get better? And, uh, you know, you, you believe you're going to be able to, to compete your way into the lineup where, whatever, whatever the, the, the makeup of the team is, um, you know, the, the coaches have to do a great job in, in organizing the way you practice because with, you know, 10 to 15 extra bodies, you're going to have to make sure you're doing everything at both ends and you're doing a lot more full field stuff. And when you do break up and do position work, you're, you're working at multiple goals and all that stuff. So, you know, as long as you're efficient with your practice, I don't think the players will notice a whole lot other than, you know, there aren't, there aren't many locker rooms that have 60 lockers. So there might be some guys bunking up for a year. So what advice do you give a senior being recruited? I used to get this at LaSalle at a different level, right? The parents would want to know how many attackmen do you have and are the seniors graduating and where would my son? And I'd say, look, we compete. That's what we do. You want to come here and get after it and find out where your kid falls? Happy to have you. <laughs> we're going to sit here and play these number games about how many attackmen we do or do not have and who's graduating. We're not going there. It's not the right spot for you. Totally right. So totally what, right. what do you say to a, a senior in high school or their parents who want to go through all this that we just talked about, roster size and how it's all going to work? Yeah, it definitely comes up. And, you know, the, the way that I address that is, you know, in, in all of the recruiting conversations I've had in, you know, 15 plus years as a division one coach, never one time have I promised someone playing time, you know, that'll be determined when you, when you get here. And so the best advice I can give you right now is continue to invest in your game, spend time improving your craft and being physically and mentally prepared to compete when you arrive on campus. Um, you know, that, that to me in general, regardless of the, the COVID circumstances is the number one challenge that high school kids face when they get to, they get to the college and the division one level is they're just, you know, unless you play at a really elite high school program, most players who will be recruited at the division one level can show up on any given day and probably be as a junior or senior, one of the, if not the best player on their team. So when you get to college, if you show up and you're not well rested or you're not mentally focused, you, you, you get you get eaten alive. And uh, that's a shock to to high school kids who aren't used to that. So the best advice that I can give anyone is to to be prepared and do the work, you know, get in the weight room. You know, you're going to you're, you're not going against kids anymore. You're going against young men and uh, you need to be physically ready. You need to have your skills sharpened. And that's the best way to to be able to compete for time when you get there. But I also say, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here recruiting you. You know, you wouldn't be doing a Zoom call with, you know, our entire staff for an hour and a half in the first month of the recruiting season if we didn't think you were someone who could come in and help us. You know, we're not interesting. We're not interested in recruiting guys to sit on the bench. You know, we want to recruit the best players we can recruit across the board. And it's still about the school, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you love St. Joe's and you want a Jesuit education and you want to come to Philly and – Lacrosse is a part of that experience, but you got to love love your school. Absolutely. A lot of great stuff there, some that we'll definitely come back and touch on again. I uh, wanted to kick it to a topic about something for coaches. Uh, we call it our X and O Insight of the Week. I know Coach Leahy wanted to ask you about the Canadian influence, the two-man game, uh, and get, the, get our wheels spinning there. I've been excited all week about this, Coach. <laughs> sure. For you to come and chat a little bit about yeah. the two-man game. So, you know, for all my years at LaSalle, I was a Baltimore guy. 
trained in Cottle and Mike Thomas ways of playing lacrosse. And so it wasn't until my under 19 USA experience that I got out to Conquitland some and got to watch some locals play. And of course we had worked with the two man game, but in box lacrosse, but watching it played up there by the locals, it was a different vibe. It was just a great experience for me to see like towns play against mm -hmm. each other. I snuck out to watch. And, and so when I say two man game and two man lacrosse, I'm not sure I'm saying the same thing as what you might be thinking as a Canadian. So could you talk to us a little bit about how you define two-man lacrosse, what it looks like to you, and what benefit and value it's bringing to the game. Yeah, so when I think about two-man game, I think about on-ball pick action. Um, and that can involve two guys, you know, you know, or three guys. You know, the two-man game obviously is going to involve just the two guys. But the, the coordination in the indoor game between the, the on-ball action and the off-ball action is what makes the two-man game work. So... You know, the timing of the off-ball cut, I've heard coaches say before, you know, that the most important guy in the two-man game is the third guy. You know, the guy who's receiving the pass and, and feeding the slipper off the pick or who's, uh, you know, who's feeding that, uh, the, the cutter to receive the ball back. Um, so, you know, when I think about it, that's, that's what I think about. You know, on-ball action with a, with a coordinated off-ball action. Do you like it to see for it to be played quickly or slowly, but smarter, like crafty? When I watch Jeff T play, I think he's so crafty. Yeah. You know, the windows they throw the ball into are so small. I, I feel like his brain is just thinking, and they're just how how am I going to find the? You, you can do both. You know, you can you can run a, a hard on ball pick action, or you can run like what I would refer to as like a a post where the ball carrier is sort of guiding his man to one side of the pick. He's reading how you're playing the pick. And then he's going to react to however you play around that post. So there's kind of like the hard on-ball pick where he's moving out to the, the on-ball defender and he's looking to make contact and you're driving your man into contact. And then there's sort of that, you know, that, that post action where the ball carrier's man isn't fully engaged on him. He's dropped off a little bit because he feels the pick coming. He's trying to navigate it. And the ball carrier is sort of, tiptoeing one way or the other to see how you're reading it. And then he'll attack that gap and read, you know, who, who's playing him next, you know, where the double's coming from and where he's passing the ball to. When I watch the Hill Academy and all the years we played him at LaSalle, um, I see so much of that happening on the wings, like mm -hmm. east and west. Definitely. More than Americans' big littles from behind at X. Can yep. you talk to us a little bit about why from east to west? And I think it's just because that's what – what the Canadian guys are used to from the box game. You're not playing from behind the goal when you're indoors. You're always working from the wings or from the, the slot uh, up top. So I think that's just, they're comfortable up there. And, you know, you're, you're used to making passes moving towards the goal. So when you, when you come off that pick and you're looking to feed the, the picker, or you're looking to swing the ball to the off ball side, and he's looking to, to feed the, the picker who's slipped to the net, Everybody's moving towards the net um, versus some of the north-south stuff that you you see and the stuff behind the goal. And my dear friend at Calvert Hall, Brian Kelly, we grew up together. And, of course, Dave Huntley was a big part of Calvert Hall across. They, Brian would say that they would study the most effective place on the field, and it was from the wings. Mm -hmm. You agree with that? Um, I do. I do. I think it's really hard to defend, especially with some of the, like, you know, the, the low-angle stuff where, you know, Traditionally, you're like, oh, I don't know if we need to slide to that. If an alley dodger is running into that space, we're probably not sliding to that. But 
because you can slip off that pick and get underneath and you're so close to the goal, the goalie doesn't really have time to react if you can put the ball to a good location. So you can still be dangerous in there uh, without, without uh, having really cleanly beat your man. I think that's another thing that the two-man game really helps, you know, and it's, it's, it's different now than it was 20 years ago with Canadians and Americans. A long time ago, I would have said that the Canadians uh, lacked maybe some of the, uh, I don't want to say they lacked the athleticism, but I would say they lacked the training, which leads to the athleticism uh, that you see, especially at the U19 level. Uh, it's certainly more, like it, the athleticism has leveled out because the training in Canada has gotten better for lacrosse players at the younger ages. Um, but if you can't run by somebody, having them navigate a pick really helps you. And, you know, the, if, they, if they switch into it and now you have a different defender who maybe is a better matchup for you, then that, that, really, that really helps you. Um, and so I think, you know, the pick game can, can, can help to negate almost an athletic disadvantage by the offensive player. Yeah, so so much of this comes from box across. And when we would move um, our LaSalle players to the to the rink inside, at first they'd be like, why are we doing so much of this? And I would point out a couple things. So I wonder if you agree. Like I'd say, guys, you get so many more touches. And then Coach Resch would say, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. <laughs> like if your stick works shaky outside, it's going to stink inside. And you're going to get tougher. Um, Learning, obviously, picks, rolls, seals, even working substitution and getting to the box. Yeah, I agree with all those things. So a few years ago, you know, I was watching a, a field camp down here. You know, it was a, a local township camp that my kids were at. And then I went up to work with, uh, uh, with uh, a friend up in Canada, Jeff Snyder, who runs an Elevate camp. And I went up there to help him with a sort of a recruiting exposure camp that he put together. And they had an indoor rink right next to the fields where we were playing. This was a, a field camp. And I poke my head in there and I see these little bobbleheads playing box lacrosse. And it's such a stark difference between the two camps because, you know, you put two little kids together, you tell them to have a catch with each other when neither of them can really pass and catch then they spend all their time chasing the ball. You know, if you yeah. have them throwing the ball against the boards, at least they're throwing the ball and getting an opportunity to pick up a ground ball or a ball off the bounce, but it's just them and it's repeated reps. You know, what's your partner doing on the field if he overthrows you? You know, he's waiting for you to run and get the ball and come back before he gets another touch. He's pounding the ball against the boards. You're getting so many more reps. And also, the, the, the rink is narrower than the field, so it takes half as much time if you miss one off the boards to go and get it. So the amount of touches was really evident immediately, especially at the, at the young age. Yeah, um, and the small windows, right? A Canadian thinks somebody's open mm -hmm. in a smaller space than my American background. No doubt. No doubt. And that's what I mean. If a guy's stick is open, he's open. You put it on his stick, and he can get a quick shot off and a great scoring opportunity. And... When you, when you think about the pick game, too, you know, you watch a, an NLL game or even a high-level box game at the WLA or the, um, you know, the junior A scene, and there are so many picks and slips going on on every shift, so it almost turns into a feel thing. You know, you can feel when the defender 
you know, the defender got chipped and now he's on your back and it's a good time to cut. You can feel when, you know what, that pick didn't work. It's time to go repick or try and seal my own man and then he'll drive his man right, right off me. So there is a, a feel factor to, you know, the two-man game that comes from just doing it so repetitively. If we had more time, we'd move into slips, seals, picks, but we'll, we'll spare our listeners for the moment. Could yeah, we'll circle back again to some of that. I wrote down a few names of Canadians I played with at Delaware that I was picturing uh, while you were describing those things, coaches. So uh, next, let's move on to culture building. We talk a lot about how to be a great teammate. Um, as I'm kind of prepping to talk with Taylor today, um, he's been at St. Joe's for uh, over a decade, and he's the winningest head coach in their program. So um, I, I just wanted to ask Taylor, you know, what, what would you describe is the culture of your lacrosse program at St. Joe's and what are the phrases that you guys try to live every day? Um, so that's a great question. You know, the, the culture piece is one that has become so popular. Everyone wants to talk about culture all the time. And, you know, every coach's convention, there's multiple coaches talking about, about culture, how you build a culture and so on and so forth. You know, for us, we, we, we talked about what type of team we want, what type of, you know, players we want on our team, what type of people we want on our team. And we really came up with, with three things, you know, selflessness, engagement, and discipline. And those are the three core values that we have in our, uh, in our program. Uh, you know, we, we sort of refer to the acronym SED as the SEED, even though you're missing an E. But I like, I like threes better than fours, so... Um, you know, we picked those three things. And why do we choose those things? Well, f first and foremost, it's clear from anyone who's been a part of a successful team or organization, you, you will not achieve your goals if you do not have selfless people on board. I think it's the single most important ingredient to winning and having a strong culture on your, on your team. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you create that? How do you get your guys to buy into that? Well, you have to you have to behavioralize it. You have to talk about what it looks like. You have to talk about selfish behavior and what that looks like. And you have to refer back to it all the time. You have to encourage the behaviors that you see that reflect that, va that, that, uh, that value. And you have to nip the other ones in the bud immediately. So selflessness for us is uh, you know, a desire to put other people first and taking pride in being a part of something bigger than one person. And that includes the subcategories of, you know, being honest, humble, and loyal, because I don't think you can be truly selfless unless you, you have those three values as well. Could you give me an example of, of what that looks like in your program? Maybe an example from the past week or two of, of a selfless act or a time where you go, you know, that guy's living our values. Yeah, I mean, it, it would start to me with like when you come out to practice, right? Everyone gets out to practice or, you know, your two pods get out to practice, but the field's empty and, you know, everyone wants to, everyone wants to have a catch. Well, who's the guy that's going to go over and get the goals out and drag them out into the creases. So, you know, we Something encourage those guys, that. you know, we say, Hey, you know, so-and-so going to get the goals, not, you know, not complaining about it, not even saying anything about it. It's just sees the job needs to be done. So he goes and does it, you know, I think, um, you know, selfish, uh, it's pretty easy to nip in the bud and you, know, you see guys get upset when they're open and someone misses the look to them and they're critical of a teammate and uh, 
you know, you got you to stop practice. You got to call that guy out on it. You know, you see someone, you know, put his, uh, put his palms up when someone fails to complete a play. And, you know, you got you to gotta draw attention to it because honestly, being selfless, I don't think is a natural human trait. You have to train yourself to be selfless. You know, I talk about it all the time. I, I share this with the, uh, the, uh, the guys on the wings, uh, or when I played with the wings, I share this story with the, you know, the, the guys on my team. I said, you know, I think it was my second or third year there. I'd had a bad game. Um, you know, I wasn't great on man down. I got skipped a couple times and I got pulled off the first man down and I'm sitting there, you know, as an assistant captain of the team, uh, leaning against the boards, you know, not being my normal energetic self when we go power and, and, and shorty. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of watching the guy who's in my spot now thinking, well, he's going to screw this up. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm not going to try and encourage him because I want my job back. Your, sp your spot, by the I way. I want my spot back. <laughs> uh, and then I think about it, and I'm like, well, what a hypocrite I am. I can't, even, I can't even do what I try and preach to my own team all the time. And so, honestly, I had that realization in that moment. I said, snap out of it. You're, be you're being a selfish teammate. And, uh, you know, you should want him now. He's got the opportunity. Try and make, you know, help him be as success successful as he can be. And so, again, it's just – it's talking about it. It's drawing attention to it. To me, the only way you build a good culture is uh, accountability. Number one, you got to reinforce the things that uh, that you want and uh, call out the things you don't. And you have to be really clear in your expectations. So you tell the guys what you want. You tell them what's unacceptable, and then you hold them accountable to it. And, and you build your, your culture that way. You're right about training on selfishness. In my later years at LaSalle, we would go over over and over again. It's not about you, John. It's not about you, Timmy. It's not about you. You didn't pay me for this, and you know it's about your teammates. It's about the school. It's about everything except you. One day you'll be a doctor. It'll be about your patients. One day you'll be a lawyer. It'll be about your clients. Maybe you'll choose to be a dad. It'll be about your kids. So you better learn now if you're going to work in this family that it's about your teammates and about your brothers. And we'd have to go over that over and over, even put them in situations where we might pull them off the field. And they'd be like, well, what? Palms up. And you'd be like, it, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that you're going to choose to cheer on your teammate. And that's what I'm looking for right now. Not yeah. you explaining why, wanting to, an explanation of why I just pulled you off the field. Exactly. Yep. Totally agree. You know, the second one, uh, the engagement piece is a little strange, right? People are like, how is engagement your a core value? But... You know, we define engagement as being totally present in the moment and giving everything you have, every part of you to the task at hand. And I think that that's really important for young men right now, you know, in the social media age where they're getting pulled in so many di different directions all the time. You know, when, when you're in class, you're in class. When you're at lunch with your friends, you're at lunch with your friends. Be engaged in what you're doing. When you're at practice, I don't want you thinking about school. Right? This is your time to get away from that. We want you fully present. You're watching the drills. You're encouraging your teammates. And so we kind of incorporate subcategories within engagement as you know, hard work, enthusiasm, and, uh, and focus. Yeah, you're right about the social media part. At my last year, we would say to the guys after the game, your phones are off. We're going to get on the bus as a family, win or lose. Mm -hmm. If we lost, we're going to sit with it because that's where you grow. Mm -hmm. You're going to think about what went wrong today. You know, it's only 40 minutes back to school. It's not going to kill you. Everything mm -hmm. on social media will still be there. And if we won, we're going to celebrate. 
We're going to laugh, turn on some music, give each and other some talk hype. talk to each other. <laughs> you know, there's nothing more that frustrates me when, you know, uh, I come in the locker room, you know, prior to a game or something, and there's 15 guys sitting in there on their phones. You know, I'm like, guys, we have to have a rule now that you can't be on your phone 15 minutes before, you know, our our offense defensive meetings before we head out for a second warm-up. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. We're going to move on to our guest roundtable, fire some questions at Coach Ray here. Uh, I got to know Taylor a little later in his career when he was a teammate of Brett Manny's on the wings and uh, a young college coach. Uh, I remember him helping us out uh, when you were at Lehigh, getting our club team into some of our first events. Uh, helping us run the Philly Showcase Camp at St. Joe's and um, and had a good relationship ever since. But could you tell us a little bit more about your background, falling in love with the game, you know, growing up with the sport, other sports, and how it kind of got you to uh, the States and where you are now? Sure. Yeah. So things were definitely different, different back then. Um, you know, I uh, grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, uh, got into lacrosse, uh, I think I was in third or fourth grade. Some some friends of mine who were hockey players uh, said, "Oh, we got a great sport. I think you'd love it." You know, when the ice comes out of the rinks, you get in there, you put the pads on, you run around. You, you know, it's a physical, fast-paced game, and uh, you should come to a practice. So I did, and you know, I never really uh, looked back. It became something that uh, I fell in love with very, very quickly. So, you know, played. Uh, all of my minor lacrosse in Edmonton, when I got uh, a little bit older, um, I started realizing that there was some opportunities to go down to the U.S. and play in college. We'd had some guys from my area who were a few years older than me uh, who had gone down to, uh, to, to the U.S. Actually, the first guy from, from my hometown in Edmonton to go down to play in the U.S. was a guy named Chris McIsaac, and he was a... Uh, uh, he, he was a coach at some youth camps when I was growing up. He was kind of like the, the best player in our area. And he actually came down with the Edmonton Miners to uh, a tournament down in, uh, in Philadelphia where they would come down in spring, over the, their spring break and, and play some of the local high schools. And uh, a guy named Pat Denon, who was the coach at uh, St. Joe's at the time, actually recruited him. So I knew of St. Joe's through Chris McIsaac being recruited there well before you know I, I came down to play myself and the first college game i actually ever saw was at st joe's there was you know no 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 stadium there at all it was just grass hill and um i remember just thinking wow this is a really really cool spot so it's pretty amazing that i'm now there as the head coach but back to my own my own story so seeing some guys uh head off to the u.s um you know, that became a goal for me. I knew that in order to do that, I had to find a way to go down there. And there was no travel programs in Canada. You know, you had to either play for the Canadian under 19 national team or you had to travel to the U.S. for a, for a recruiting tournament. So I actually left in the middle of the uh, provincial uh, playoff series to go down to uh, Baltimore for, you know, five days and play in champ camp. And, you know, back then, I don't know if Champ Camp still exists, but back then there were 16 teams at Champ Camp. I know it got as big as like 150 teams at Champ Camp, but there were 16 teams, and I played on a team called Team USA, which was a mishmash of guys from, it was me and another Canadian, uh, Peter Goot, a good friend of mine who also 
uh, played down in uh, down in North Carolina for his college career. But um, anyway, uh, we came down. We got put on Team USA. There was uh, two kids from Tennessee, two kids from Texas, a couple kids from Florida, and we played against all these, you know, MIA, Baltimore, IAC teams from uh, from down there in this in the tournament at Champ Camp. And uh, you know, I was playing attack at the time. Um, you know, Coach Albarisi, who was the assistant coach at Duke when I was there, was there to watch a, an individual on the other team. And I must have pun- <laughs> punched a few in the net in that game and rode really hard and ran around and made an impression. But it's even uh, to, to add some humor to the story, his wife, Petra, was with him because they were going up to uh, some family stuff. He's from New York. So they were on their way north, I think. Uh, so she was with him uh, at the uh, at the game. And she said, well, you know, well, you're here for that guy, but what about this guy? You know, <laughs> she's Co- a fan of Co- yours. Coach Pressler, he he likes the big strong guys, and you got a big strong kid here, and um, so uh, Petra claims to this day that she <laughs> she was the reason I was recruited to Duke, and uh, I uh, I owe her greatly for that. But was recruited as an attackman, played attack my freshman year, sort of a scout team guy, uh, moved into the midfield sophomore junior year. Uh, you know, played some meaningful minutes in midfield and then moved to moved to defense my senior year and started every game as a defenseman and then moved on to, to play as a defenseman professionally and with the Canadian national team. And then, um, yeah, that was sort of uh, sort of my career and how I got down there to, to Duke. I love it. Two Canadians, if I, if I got this right, two Canadians <laughs> on a summer club team called Team USA. Correct. Yeah. It was quite, uh, quite comical. And I love that you, at the highest level, played attack midfield and defense i was seeing that in my later years at LaSalle. i'd say to guys so what do you play like a freshman i'm a right-handed midi and i'd be like really like get in line i got a lot of them yeah can you play any attack for a little bit you spend all this money in the summer can you do anything else (laughs) can you can you do anything else no and then one guy would be like i'll try it and you know he'd put in his two or three months that weren't pretty but then he was a good attackman Mm -hmm. so i love hearing that you were more than a, a multi-positional player. You tried it all. Yeah, I did. I think it's actually helped in my coaching career because, you know, I I, uh, I spent a good amount of time learning how to coach offense and attack position work and midfield play and defensive midfield. And uh, I was a man down midfielder as a short stick and then a man down guy with, uh, you know, with the pole. So it's definitely helped to be well-rounded and versed in how offense and defense work. And the perspective. When I'd get really frustrated in my younger days, Coach Coop, I'd say to a guy, you know what? You go get in goal. You see what they say. <laughs> the, one, the one position I had no interest in, uh, in playing. So you go get in there, and after you get hit three times, let's see if you're going to play some defense now. Like, yeah. It's just different. I, I like to, uh, to tell our guys at practice, and I've only done it once or twice, but you know, if they step in inside the cones, you know, we put the cones out to protect the goalies in a shooting drill, and guys creep in a little too close, say, all right, you go. You, you take one shot inside the cone. You get in net for the next rep, and uh, you know that, that snaps them into place pretty quick. So, who are two or three influential coaches? I'm sure you have plenty, but can tell us who they are and why. Yeah, I mean, there's been a ton. Um, starting, I think the first, the most influential early coach for me was my high school basketball coach named Tim Martins, and he, uh, I think that's where I really learned about discipline and hard work and uh, really how to how to compete. Um, you know, growing up, 
there was uh, several box coaches, you know, Paul Dalmonte and Dave Locke, who coached our Burnaby Laker team that won a couple of Minto Cups. Uh, I think they really taught you how to be a, a, a professional and train like a professional. You know, I think from those teams we had in Burnaby, you know, th there was the team had 25 guys. I played there for three years, probably 60 60 players went on to be professional lacrosse players so it was some really really talented teams um and uh you know from there coach pressler you know coach alberici were definitely instrumental both of those guys are still very much mentors to me uh aj Jelma, who coached the uh the edmonton miners junior b team that i played for for a number of years i think was also you know he was a, a very disciplined guy and taught you how to be a disciplined player. So there's been a, there's been a whole bunch. I hope I didn't uh, forget anybody. With the Canadian national team, obviously, Dave Huntley was a big part of that. I learned so much sort of strategy and how to, how to deal with the, you know, the, the, the multiple, I don't want to say egos because they don't have egos, but coaching professionals is very different than coaching high school or college kids. Um, and, uh, you know, Dave and Randy Mearns were definitely have been uh, – you know, influential on me in that regard. While we're on the topic of the Canadian national team, could you just give us an overview of your history, either playing for that team uh, and or coaching, which I think you continue to do? Yeah, it's uh, I, my first experience with the Canadian national team was in 1999. Um, I played on our U19 team in Adelaide, Australia. My brother played on that team with me as well. And uh, to show you how small the lacrosse world is, Ke Kevin Cassis was also on the U.S. U19 team. So the first time I met Kevin, who was one of my closest friends, uh, was, was in Adelaide, Australia, in the dining hall. In, uh, you know, and uh, it just so happened that uh, my dad was a manager with the Canadian team. Or I don't even remember what his role was. You know, he was support staff in some regard, but he was over there. And Tom Cassis, Kevin's father, was over there as well. And both our fathers were football players. And my dad played college football, and then he played for a couple of years in the Canadian Football League for the BC Lions. And Tom Cassis played in the NFL for a number of years, but he came down to the CFL and crossed over with my dad mm, for the BC wow. Lions. So they met, having had been teammates 30 years ago, Again, in Adelaide, Australia, said, you know, I played with a guy back in the 70s, <laughs> last name Cassis, uh, who came up from the, you know, I think he uh, I think he was in B.C. for a couple of years, and then he went to Toronto. But, you know, my dad had played with him in B.C. for a year. So, again, small, small world. It's quite the feeling, isn't it, when you stand there with Team Canada on your uniform and they play the national anthem? It is. There's no – there's uh, – it's one of the greatest feelings you can have. And uh, the, uh, I guess to answer your, your question uh, that you asked about my involvement with Team Canada. So I played in 99 with the U19 team. I played in 2006 with the men's team when we won a gold uh, uh, in London, Ontario. I tried out in 2010 and Hunts cut me. Uh, but he then asked me to join his coaching staff, which as sour as I was not to be playing, was still a great honor to, to join the coaching staff. So I coached with the men's team in 2010 uh, in Manchester and uh, really amazing experience. That was uh, Chris Sanderson's last go round um, dealing with brain cancer and foregoing uh, uh, 
you know, chemotherapy and some other treatments to go over there was really, really an inspiring story, but that's a different, different story for another time. And then I coached the U19 team in 2012 in Finland, uh, in Turku, Finland, which was a really, really fun experience, you know, to go over there. Um, I have a vivid memory of the first game we played against the U.S. over there where both teams, the setup was really cool. Both teams had to go through the, the same tunnel to get there, and we were both coming out at the same time, and there was a lot of jawing back and <laughs> forth and a lot of energy as the teams took the field, but it was really a, a cool environment. And then in 2014, um, what was 2014? 2010, 12, 14 was Denver, I believe. Men's. Right, yeah. Men's in Denver. Gold men's medal. in Denver which was, of all the times I've been involved with, uh, you know, Team Canada, that the, the tournament and just the format in Denver was, was really a, an amazing, uh, just U.S. Lacrosse did a terrific job running it, and it was, uh, it was awesome. They had the festival going on and all that stuff, so that was cool. And then, um, you know, to, to win there was also, uh, you know, really, really special. Um, and then 2018... U19 team in Coquitlam, which was, uh, you know, fun to be back in, you know, my, uh, my home country. And, you know, again, the games were as hotly contested as ever. And then uh, 2020 was Israel. So unless I got those years mixed up. It's so our game was 2016, right, in Coquitlam. That's what it was. Yeah, and that was a whale of a game. It was that 10, gold 12, medal 14, game was tough. 16. Yeah, it was. Tough stuff. Gold medal game at was At the awesome. end, I looked over at you, Coach. I didn't know you that well, but I was like, neither team should have lost. Yeah, that was that was uh, about as gut-wrenching as it uh, as it could have been. But, you know, that's, uh, that's, you, you can't win them all. And, and I felt like both teams left everything they had out there. To wrap up international lacrosse, like that was my first experience. Some of the rules are different. Do you have a favorite or a least favorite, either one? Uh, I like the, 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 the college game. I do. I like the shot clock. Um, the international game is, you know, there's a lot of strategy and jockeying for position and that type of thing. But I do like the college game the best. Yeah, I struggled with the length. Of each quarter well the, every time i'd look up especially as a high school guy our games are so much shorter yeah. and I'd, I'd look up because i was running the box i barely watched the game i was yeah. busy so i'd look up and think to myself there's got to be four minutes left in the quarter and said it was 14 minutes you know? yeah we uh so in 2006 in london uh, ontario it was really hot so they kept having these water breaks and you're playing 20, 20 minute quarters with water breaks like every six or seven minutes the games were like three hours long i'm like the last thing these guys need to be out is out here on this turf where it's 120 degrees for three hours. Like, just let's let it run. They can drink water on the bench. They don't need uh, the break for water. Same thing in, in Israel. The games were really, really long. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I like the college game. I like the new rules in the college game. You know, I, I don't see that changing in the international game, but I do like the way the college game flows. I'm interested to see if this – you know, some of the stuff they're, they're playing with for Olympic lacrosse catches on. I would, I would love to see the regular international game being played, but we'll see if some of these new rules they're, they're uh, trying out ever uh, take, take hold. If we wrap up our chat here on international lacrosse, could we talk a little bit about Dave Huntley? I'm, I bet you a lot of our listeners don't know Dave. He passed away and we lost him, mm -hmm. but a major influence in Baltimore as well as in Canada. So could you tell us a little bit about who he was and how you knew him and 
why he uh, was such a good fit. Yeah, so I, I met Dave in, I think, the tryouts in 2005 prior to playing with the, the men's team in 2006. He was an assistant coach or the associate head coach with Frank Nielsen for that for that team in 2006. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he's he is the reason that the, the Canadian national team program has become what it has become in terms of the just the raised level of competitiveness over the last, uh, you know, 15 years. Um, you know, he's done a ton of volunteer work for the national team program. He's invested time in, in uh, raising awareness about the programs and um, uh, just sort of building the structure that needed to be in place and working with the CLA to do that. So, you know, he's a big reason uh, that, that we have the national team programs that we do now. Um, in terms of who he was as a as a person, he's probably the most likable guy you could ever meet. You know, incredible sense of humor, you know, lit up the room, uh, fun guy to be around. You know, I, can, I can, can't think of a single time I was around Dave and, and, and there wasn't a lot of laughing going on. You know, he uh, obviously, you know, has, has, has had an exemplary career as a player at Hopkins uh, and then playing with the Canadian national team as a coach at you know, pretty much every professional level, MLL, NLL, um, national teams. I mean, he's just, uh, he was such a big, uh, bigger, you know, than life person in the Canadian lacrosse scene and in the Baltimore lacrosse scene and really, you know, the professional lacrosse scene. It was uh, just a tragedy. We didn't have him with us longer. That's great, and I think really good for our younger listening audience to learn more about Coach Huntley. I know I just learned some things about him I didn't know. Um, Coach, I wanted to ask you about something you said six or seven years ago in a recruiting talk you gave with the next kids. Uh, you talked about the lax bro culture, mm -hmm. and you emphatically said you'd like to you know, get that culture, ball it up, and keep rolling it, keep rolling it, and roll it right off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to um, hear you talk a little bit more about that you know, whether you think the, that is a culture that has improved or um, as you bring younger lacrosse players and your family into the sport, you know, what, what is that and what can we be doing better um, as a sport? Uh, yeah, I, I, I still believe that, you know, I, uh, I, I just want people to take the sport seriously at every level, you know. Um, I, I think that people should be able to express themselves and, you know, wear bright colors and, you know, do what they want. I just, if you're going to, if you're going to commit to doing something, you should try and do it well. And uh, I think for me, what is, is cool is to see people who care about the sport. They're invested in their craft. They work hard at being great at what they're doing. Um, you know, they're organized. They're, uh, um, they're uh, supportive of teammates and, you know, I just don't like the cool guy attitude, whether it's in lacrosse or whether it's in, you know, someone, you know, that you're teaching in the classroom. I think it's it's cool to be someone who cares and wants to be good at things. And, you know, I just uh, there's there's part of me that says, like, you know, the, the, the bro mentality, the the let's just chill and be laid back. Like, you know, that's fine, I guess, if that's what you want to do. But. You know, if, if you if you truly want to be great at the sport, then that's not going to help you get there. And then along along with that, uh, you mentioned the word traits earlier. 
um, you know, what are the traits that get you excited about a potential student athlete or when you see the guys on your team displaying them, you know, what are those traits that are getting you fired up? Um, the first one I think is maturity. You know, when, uh, when you talk to a kid on the phone, uh, when, you, uh, when you watch a kid in the game, uh, when you Zoom with him and his parents or you tour him around campus, I think you want someone who's mature, who can carry the conversation and a ask the questions and shows that they've thought about questions they might be asked. I think when you're watching a game, you, you can evaluate the maturity based on the way they interact with teammates, the way they interact with coaches, the way they interact with officials. Um, how do they respond to success? Uh, you know, how do they respond to adversity? Um, what do they look like, you know, late in the day uh, on a on a 90 degree day in July? So I think maturity is a big one. You know, uh, obviously you, you have to be hardworking, and I think that that the more you watch lacrosse and, and Coach Lay, and you've seen enough lacrosse at this too, Coach Coop, that you. You know, when you watch a game, there are players that stick out because of how hard they play. And, you know, if you watch an entire game, probably at the end of the game, you can say, wow, there were three or four kids, two on each team, that just played harder than everyone else. They may not have been the best kid on the team, but I noticed them because they were, like, in attack mode all the time when the ball was on the ground, when they were going to the goal, when they were d their guy up. Um, you know, when they were making a save and making the outlet call, they were just so energetic and playing so hard. So I think the maturity, the work ethic are two that you, that you find right away. And if you're talking recruiting, the athleticism piece obviously has to be there and the skill piece has to be there. But I think the maturity and the, the work ethic are two that, that, that jump out right away when I'm looking at players. Yeah, I also love smarter. It's harder and smarter. I love seeing guys just do IQ-like things. Like, boy, who taught you your X and O's? Like, that's definitely that was one going to be one of my next things. So, you got the maturity, the work ethic, the athleticism, and then you have to really hone in on the IQ. You know, I've been fooled at every position where I look at a guy who, you know, he, he's he's big, he's long, he's athletic, he's rangy, he can really chase his man around on defense. And then I watch him when the ball is – when he's not covering the ball, and he's lost. He's covering a different guy every time he turns his head. He's <laughs> picking up a new guy. And I'm thinking to myself, holy smokes, his IQ and awareness is not there. And that is stuff that is very, very hard to teach. You know, if you haven't gotten that part by the, the later years of your high school, it's probably not going to get all that much better in college. Yeah, and playing other sports helps. No playing doubt. Some basketball, playing no some doubt. football, getting yelled at by somebody else, mm -hmm. seeing the games in different ways, different mm -hmm. games, that is. Different angles, different passing angles, how to read space, you know, all of those things. My last question as we bring this section to a close, um, let's talk about St. Joe's. We're yeah. going to play in the spring. We are. So um, sell us. Let's well, go. How are we going to look? Uh, the, team is, the team, we return every, uh, every player from our team last year except two. Uh, we added a strong freshman class, so uh, I'm very excited about the team that we have. You know, we we were off to a great start last year, five and two. Our two losses were to number one in the country, Penn State, uh, who I think uh, 
I wish we had another opportunity to play them. It was not a pretty game for us. We got shellacked pretty good, but it was eye-opening. You know, we have we had a very young team last year. We started two freshmen on attack, two freshmen in our top six midfielders, two freshmen in our top four close defensemen. Uh, so we had a pretty pretty young squad. I think the moment of that game was a little big for them, but they rebounded right away. We came back off of that Penn State game and knocked off. Delaware, who was ranked 20th in the country like three days later. So that was a, a huge win for us and a confidence booster. And then uh, we played Providence right after that, who was off to a 3-0 and start and receiving votes in the national polls. And we, we knocked them off as well. So those were two quality wins for us. And then we moved into uh, a battle against Monmouth, who is a regional opponent. We, uh, we enjoy battling with them. They've had some good success over the last few years. So... We, we beat Monmouth, and then we rolled uh, into the Philly Four weekend, which is a, an awesome event for the last two years where, you know, we played back-to-back -back games with, uh, with uh, Drexel, Penn, and Villanova. So we played Drexel on the Friday night at Penn and uh, knocked them off. Uh, it was the second time in three years that we did that. So, you know, they're, they're a really tough team, and um, they went on and knocked off Villanova the next day, who was 14th in the country. So... Um, that it was it was a quality quality win for us and a really close game and then we we played Penn that Sunday and lost 13 12 uh, with a goal in the final minute uh, we we led in the fourth quarter with about four minutes left and uh, couldn't couldn't seal the deal but um, you know our team was off to a terrific start we were about to start conference season um, we had an all-american goaltender and a, an all-american faceoff guy who is back and you know is 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 going to be a, a force to be reckoned with this year. So we're excited about where the team can go. Um, you know, basically with all of those young players that we just mentioned, having four years of eligibility left, uh, the future is certainly bright at St. Joe's. And, you know, it's, it's St. Joe's is going to look a lot different in the next, you know, you know two to four years with some of the uh, facility enhancements that are uh, coming down the pipeline. Well, as a parent, I was impressed because I saw you a couple months ago there with my daughter. But just walking through and getting the vibe of the place and seeing you and my daughter enjoying it, and maybe I'll be around a bunch more. We'll see where my Emily Leahy ends up choosing. But That would be great. It's looking like great. a Jesuit school, St. Joe's Loyola Scranton. You could so. always use, uh, you know, the director of ops in the area. So <laughs> You got it. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Taylor. You've, you've dropped a lot of knowledge on us. I don't think we got a chance to – Mentioned your NLL Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, some championships. So um, it was great to see you kind of try to navigate through which years you represented the national team, too. <laughs> so it's been an awesome career, and, and we're certainly fans. Coach Leahy, I know you love uh, our last section. You want to help Taylor get it started? All right, Coach. So for our rapid-fire section, let's go! Which is always one of my favorites as we bring our show to its close, um, I'm going to ask you for some homework advice for some players and parents. So here we roll. What homework do you have for players? Uh, get your stick in your hands. Wall ball. You know, never, never fail you. And for parents? Um, be present with your kids. Find a way to encourage them and support them every day. And for coaches? Check out the uh, Instagram Coach Through Cancel feed. There's a lot of great stuff on there. I go on there and refer back to it for new drills all the time. So coach through cancel on Instagram was set up by uh, the staff at Richmond. And they asked um, every week, different uh, division one programs to produce a couple of videos. So 
there's some awesome stuff on there. Nice. So what are you reading or listening to these days? Uh, reading right now a book called Mind Gym by Gary Mack, which is, uh, you know, focuses on sort of the, the mental side of sport performance, which I'm, I'm trying to learn more about. You know, I think some of that is built into, you know, the way that you're coached and the way that you teach. But I do think that uh, there's uh, some things that, I want to be better at unlocking and helping my kids through when they they battle that uh, that inner voice. So it's a it's a really interesting uh, investigation into some 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 different professional athletes and what they do with their mental preparation. Those are great answers. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the coaching through cancellation YouTube this spring mm-hmm. uh, while we were quarantined, and really there was nothing to do but watch lacrosse stuff. So credit to you and the other staffs that got after it because it was a resource we passed on to our kids and I definitely picked up some drills. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we wanted to just say congratulations to coach Ray on, on his career. It was fun to hear about it. We wish him continued success at St. Joseph university and on Hawk Hill. I want to thank Taylor for his time with us today. I'm confident that every player, parent and coach out there could get some value out of this episode on behalf of Taylor, Bill, and our producer, Justin. We're signing off from the next office in Conshohocken. Thank you. Coach, that was awesome. You were great. Good job, you guys. Thank you. Yeah.